Welcome to a special season of Outside Inside Radio. I'm your host, Kathy Foley-Meyer, and for this season we are interviewing writers who contributed to the book, The Sentences That Create Us, Crafting a Writer's Life in Prison. The book is part of PET America's Prison and Justice Writing Initiatives. PEN America describes itself as, quote, a nationwide community of writers and literary professionals, as well as devoted readers and supporters who join with them to carry out PEN America's mission. PEN America advocates for writers under threat worldwide and public policies that bolster freedom of speech and offers platforms to lift up the work and views of those whose voices have too often gone unheard or been ignored. End quote. Today, I'm speaking with Zeke Caligiri and Jennifer Bowen Hicks. Zeke is the author of This Is Where I Am, a memoir, which was a finalist in 2017 for a Minnesota Book Award. He has won four Penn Prison Writing Awards. Jennifer Bowen Hicks is the founder and artistic director of the Minnesota Prison Writing Workshop. Her work has appeared in The Sun, Orion, The Iowa Review, Kenyon Review, The Rumpus, and elsewhere. Welcome to both of you. I'm really excited to have you with us. Thanks, Kathy. I'm going to start with Zeke, and I wanted to ask, Zeke, if you could share just a little bit about your journey to becoming a writer. Absolutely. Well, I had always been someone who who liked to write. I was at a really good relationship with English teachers as a young person. But I also grew up in South Minneapolis in the mid-90s when a lot of urban communities were experiencing a really big surge in, in violence. And I was a young person in the middle of a lot of that stuff. And I got caught up in sort of like, I guess, the the thrust of whatever that trend was at the time. And I uh, got locked up at 21 years old. And, and so when I came to it, I ended up, you know, I was sitting in a jail cell and I was, I was facing life in prison. I would inevitably get 34 years that I would have to do 22 and some change off of. I needed something that mattered to me. And it was a, it was a really important sort of step to understanding like, all right, what direction am I going to take? You come in through those doors a lot of times. You can go any number of different directions. And so for me, it was really important. And so I, I really started reading a whole lot. And these were books that touched my life in a way that I guess I didn't expect, but then also too, in a way that that made me want to write things that could touch other people's lives as well. And so I really just started writing. This would have been 20, 20 year, 25 years ago, 22. I mean, and at this point, it's just getting crazy, but um, and really just did it with the idea that I would try it and see how I do it. And it became just something that became really a part of, of my being and my identity. Even while incarcerated, we, we had this wonderful poetry group. It was a writer's collective early on. And, you know, it was and it, it put me in the middle of a community that would end up maybe not the exact people, but would end up sort of being a model for the way I did the rest of my time. And it was just around other creatives, around those folks. And there really just came a time when, like, I just felt like it was necessary that I would be able to express myself. It was a big deal. I wanted to write books like people who wrote the books that touched my life. And who, which books, which books were those? 
Do you mind my asking? Well, there's, there's a lot of them, right. but uh, well, maybe you know, a couple. There, there's a lot of them, but you know, when you think about it, I read as many of the classes as I could, with a specific emphasis on a lot of the great novelists of the 20th century, some of the great poets. I read a lot of Toni Morrison, and I read uh, a lot of. Well, it's it, it's hard to it it'd be hard to just start listing, but it was right. Pretty no, much I absorbed it and consumed it like it was like it was. This was my sustenance, and it really for a long time it really was because I wasn't getting that necessarily from the community that I was living in, and it was really necessary for me to sort of find an avenue that I could escape to, and that was that was where it was, and 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 then it just really came a time like where you know I I felt it was really important that I write my stories down or they will go away forever, you know? And I, and a lot of this you did in sort of by yourself and solitary or uh, just in conference with yourself. Right. And then eventually you, I believe that you were a co-founder of the Stillwater Writers Collective. Oh, no, I, I definitely was. I didn't. Right. Yeah, no, I definitely was. What what happened was we realized that these programs would come in things, cool mm -hmm. things would come in for short periods of time. Our poetry group was an example there too. And then something would happen. Right. There's, there's a weird threat that comes with writers and artists. For some reason, it is the way, way institutions a lot of times tend to think of us as being somebody that's a little more dangerous or, or that like you have some kind of influence that might not necessarily be true, but it's this thing and there's a perception of it. And so we would, we would watch our programs come and go and we would watch really good people that we really liked who believed in, you know, what the, they were doing here, leave, not ever be able to come back. And so what me and my friend C. Fausto Cabrera, who is still incarcerated, but he's somebody that I spent a lot of time talking about, like what what's the next 20 years of our lives going to look like and what does it mean? And, and we realized that we weren't going to be able to count on facilities, institutions, or system people to fix or even necessarily even create things that made it less or made it more bearable. And so we decided that if we were to create a program, this is what it would look like. And it, and it was something that would have come with classes and it would have come with mentorships and it would have come with access to... Uh, literature and a lot of the things that we value, right? And, you know, and at the time I was writing my book and I really just wanted to finish this book. And those were very real threats, like in a space where, you know, you couldn't just have those kind of personal projects. You definitely couldn't type them and keep them. So it was, uh, I, I was very much trying to be protective over this project because I believed in it. It was what mattered to me. And, and Chris had these ideas, C. Fausto had these ideas about, bringing a permanent program. It would also allow a space where some of the guys who had been around longer would be able to, to do some mentorship to some younger folks, and you'd be able to mix it up and create like a long-term program, not unlike other programs that have existed. It's just we definitely didn't have the funding at the time. And, and, and so we got together and we created the Long-Term Offender Group and the Stillwater Writers Collective. And it was at a time when programming was really thin. We had had a lot of state leadership that gutted the programs from, from our facilities. And so by the time we got together, which was around 2009, 2010, there just was very little. And they started offering, uh, they started like even suggesting that they would start to parole lifers who had possibilities of parole. And so 
there was this huge flood of people into the, whatever existing programs existed at the time, and there was a need for it. So at the time, it worked out because we had proposed this thing at a time when there just wasn't programming, right? Right. And then we were fortunate enough then to meet Jen, you know, who's with us right now, uh, who brought with her some classes under the the name of the Minnesota Prison Writing Workshop. And, you know, I, I don't think anybody really had a whole lot of long-term expectations, but we just wanted to make sure that they knew when they came in that there was already a group here, there were already established writers, and that there were a whole lot of folks who gave a damn about what it was that you were bringing to us. Yeah. Now, in fact, I want to pull a quote from your essay um, about something you just mentioned about a minute ago. And the quote is, power, though, can arouse fear and suspicion from the ruling class. And I wanted to ask you, you know, with this current high level of interest in art and writing coming from prison, do you feel like we're making progress towards dampening that fear and suspicion or not? Well, I think there's definitely a public movement. I, I think uh, I think one of the things, the byproducts of mass incarceration is that you multiply the people that are in these places, but then you're then multiplying the people whose lives they touch, and that's their family and their friends and stuff. And so you have a much broader portion of America that has had to confront the over-incarceration of its people, right? And so you have a whole lot more people who know what it feels like to go visit somebody in a visiting room or to have to send money to their people regularly, right? Gotcha. Jennifer, I want to switch to you for a moment and ask you about your path to becoming the artistic director of the Minnesota Prison Writing Workshop and co-founder. Sure. It was kind of accidental. It was an accidental nonprofit that just um, stemmed out of a love of writing. I was kind of a wayward kid and underparented. And so I had a habit of imprinting upon the you know, important mentors in my life. And those tended to always be writing instructors and English teachers. And one such mentor just spoke really highly of the work that he had done in prisons and spoke of it as some of the more meaningful work he'd done, which made a real impression upon me because he was a, still is, um, David Jouse, a writer and a human who has more integrity and a, a bigger heart than just about anybody I've known. And his capacity for giving is pretty endless. And so when he spoke about the importance of that work, I heard that and just volunteered to teach a class. I really think of the six students that were in that first class as co-founders of the org because they were so, they were just so ready for it. They were so eager for it. They were so willing to write, to read. You know, this none of them were in the cohort that Zeke talked about earlier with the Stillwater Writers Collective because we began at Lionel Lakes. But that kind of hunger and seriousness and like insistence on having people show up and, and expect that you're there to do serious work and, you know, be a human, which doesn't which doesn't sound like it should be all that much of a, a guess, but it is in that, I mean, in that environment, it's, it's no, it's no small okay. assumption. They were there for it. And yeah, they just, they just made it feel like a really exciting, worthwhile way to spend the days and maybe an entire lifetime. And, and I think we extended that first class by four or five weeks. It just seemed like we weren't quite wow. done. And so we kept extending it. And, yeah. and I asked for permission to come back again. And they allowed me and I asked if they might be willing to let a few other folks come with. And they did. And by they, I mean that particular facility. So they they absolutely let us through the door. But those original six 
were the ones that made it kind of hard to sleep at night because their work was so, mm. it was, um, it was just really incredible work. It was a group of people telling stories that they'd been waiting a lifetime to, to tell. tell. Yeah. Um, and it just, it felt yeah. like a real privilege to, to be able to hear those stories and to be entrusted with them. Yeah. And, and for the most part, that's still the way I experienced those stories on the inside. But those first six were really special um, to the founding yeah. of the org. Because you're also, you're with someone on their journey of self-discovery. They're not only revealing themselves to you, but they're revealing themselves to themselves. Mm-hmm. And that's a really powerful experience to share with yeah. somebody. No, I mean, it's the magic of writing that all of us know. And even, you know, we forget that that's the magic until it happens again and again, or at least I do. I have to relearn right. it over and over. But yeah, it was really thrilling to be there. And I wanted to ask you about something you wrote in the book about accessing memory or cracking open the door, as you call it, because memory can be a really kind of tricky thing, can be tripped in ways that might work against what the writer's trying to create. So I was curious how you assist your students in avoiding the traps of memory, which can involve outdated views of ourselves. Oh, that's interesting. Well, one of the things I I teach more often than not, and also that I write, is the personal essay. And so that's kind of a beautiful form to deal with memory because you can challenge it on the page. You can use reflection, should use reflection. I mean, that's part of the teaching of it, right? I think that the, I think that you're asking partly a craft question, which is cool, mm-hmm. and also partly a, a sort of philosophical question. And, and the craft answer, I guess, for me is, is, is in part summary and narrative and exposition. I mean, it's the magic in the art, right? It just... If you do it well and you are a student of it, it resolves a lot of that. You know, our narratives change over time. And when we're writing them, we can see that, which is pretty remarkable. Philosophically, I don't know that I find memory to be such a trap. I think mostly it's a gift. I mean, there are hard stories that have to be told, but confronting them and naming them and labeling them is so much more empowering than never having given voice to them, you know? So certainly there are difficult moments in classrooms and in my own writing, you know, any of us, I think that do that kind of work from memory, but I don't think of it as a trap so much Mm -hmm. unless, unless a writer is just unwilling to, um, to confront. Yeah. I'd have to think through that. I I can tell you the first class, this group of six, I mentioned um, one writer wrote and wrote and wrote, and it wasn't until about halfway through the class that he started really um, confronting some of the stories from his past in really concrete details and real sensory stuff that I think made it pretty evident that some of that was the first time he'd really revisited it in a visceral way. And so tears became a big part of the class and, um, or at least for him, they did. And this cohort handled that by teasing each other. He took their ribbing with some like decent humor, but um, yeah, just because it was emotional for him and, and, and they were supportive and everything, but they still teased him, um, which I think made it easier uh, to, to mix in some of that. Well, I think there's also a taking when we're talking about memory too, right? I think there's there's also a taking back of those stories because much of your life is just sort of, it's it's now been snatched and put into a box and reformulated under this whole thing. And so like we tend to have, uh, we tend to get conditioned in us this idea that everything before incarceration is just sort of the reflection of broken people and, you know, and so as a result, like, I think, I think like, we know all memory is inconsistent, but we know that our memories are still our memories in a way too. And so I think there is an empowerment in being able to like, start to like examine your stories because the truth is the people who take away your history, 
don't really know the details. They understand. Mm-hmm. So they can sort of take away some of the skeletons, but like all that meat is still left there. And it's, and that's, I think that's where there's sort of a, a whole lot of power in the idea of memory. It's just that you're taking it back. Right. And, and, and we're talking about a lot of people sort of taking it back and be like, you know what, if stories about my mother are going to be told, they're going to be told by me. Right. right. And, you know, and so I think that's super necessary. And I think that's what, like when you come with creative writers and they start to give you some, they start to give you like different entryways into things that you've been thinking about or different entryways into your own stories too. Like I think a lot of creative and cool things can really come from that too. Totally. And tough and heavy and powerful as well. Yeah. I think we're often surprised though, by the depth of emotion that we carry with our memories. I think because we, when we hold on to them and we kind of file them away and it's sort of like when you open up an old drawer and like all this musty stuff comes mm-hmm. out. So, you know, it's that element of surprise that maintains the human connection that I love. And I also really liked one of your opening sentences, Jennifer, about the writer D who, quote, pays exquisite attention to the way others pay attention. And I was thinking about um, his essay, which explains the inhuman human dichotomy of prison and how we can turn off our ability to actually see one another if we're not careful. And I was wondering if you thought it was possible to change that trajectory that Jeff Young describes in your essay, quote, where our survival depends, demands, we look away and to our survival, depending upon recognition through paying attention to the fullness of our fellow humans. I was wondering what you meant by there is the looking for the light in that same essay. Can you read it? I, my no. memory, my memory is not great. So I would be the last to be able to tell you what I meant. I, I will say while you're looking, Dee is a former student who unfortunately has passed away. And oh. I think um, Zeke knew him and he, I, I didn't mention it in this particular essay, but he had a line in an essay that floored me the day I read it and floors me to this day. And it was something to the effect of how does a man shine a light on another human, you know, 678,000 times over the course of num- of a number of years and still not see him. He does it in eight hour shifts. Right. Right. I, I, love, that line. That was I love that line. I have heard that yeah. before, actually. Yeah. To Zeke's point that even change, um, there's still the people with the flashlights, but. Um. Okay. So I'll just start from what, how though student Jeff Young asks in class, are we to pay attention as a writer in a place where our survival demands we look away? And you write, there is no easy answer to that question. And what answers exist aren't mine to give. There is the looking for the light, listening to others' language. And I was just, when you say the looking for the light, is that the light of the human connection or something else? I, who knows what I meant in that moment? I I would define the light perhaps as the community itself, the looking mm-hmm. itself, the, the art itself, the work itself. And so all of these kind of epiphanies and gifts that we've been talking about that come through the work itself. Right. Um, you know, and I don't want to speak for Jeff beyond the sentence that he gave me approval to use there, but I understand very much his, his dilemma, right? Totally. Art demands that you look and he just doesn't want to, but at the same time, he, he does do, he does do a different type of looking um, through the art. And I think therein is, is some light. I don't want to overly romanticize it because it still sucks. 
Right. Yeah, Zeke, as I said, I don't want to speak for anyone who's actually having to navigate looking on all the different levels in a, in prison, and, and maybe Zeke would like to, but at least from what I see in a creative writing classroom, um, there are those gifts. There are the gifts of insight and remembering and communication, the breaking through with each other. And also, um, just like any community, when people come together, um, yeah, humor and a, a sometimes deeper understanding of each other because of the work. Got it. And how did you guys meet? I mean, I know you met, obviously, when was it when you were teaching as part of the MPWW? Had you read Zeke's work and then? Yeah. I. How long have I known you, Zeke? Forever? Since I was young? You were young? <laughs> I've known you since 2013. Yeah. So I had to go to, to a medium security, which would mean I had to leave Stillwater. Mm-hmm. And so we had already created the, the Writers Collective. We already were around. And the Minnesota Prison Writing Workshop sent another instructor in to teach a couple of different instructors to teach a couple of different classes. And neither of those people were Jennifer. So I didn't meet you until my, what happened was my custody level went down. I had been in the facility for 13 years and I had to go to a a different custody level. And so I went to to Lionel Lakes. It just happened to be that's where uh, Jen had been teaching. And I, I mean, I think there was, it was like a, a meeting as far as like, moving forward, what kind of things we were trying to, you know, to bring in, what kind of classes we were trying to bring in and what sort of, you know, the ways in which we could sort of maximize it. Right. I think it was a really small class. I think D was one of those, uh, one of those participants. Yeah. And you didn't teach. I don't think I have ever taken a class with you or from Mm -hmm. you, but we certainly taught classes Mm -hmm. together. Yeah, yeah, so I knew of Zeke before I met him. All of the instructors raved about his work and his mind. And so I his reputation preceded him. When I finally met him, I was like, y'all, he's sassy. Everybody just thought he was really <laughs> smart. I didn't realize he was kind of mouthy um, <laughs> in all good ways. Um, no, we never worked together in that way, but we co-taught um, an adult basic education class at Faribault one year. That was just a blast. It was one of my all-time favorite classes. And that worked so, so well because the students there n- knew of Zeke and his work. And they, they, I think they really just loved having him in the classroom as an example of, of what you can do with words. And um, yeah, yeah, it was a really fun class. That is cool. So Zeke, if you don't mind, I wanted to read something from your memoir. Um, this is where I am. And then ask you a question on the back end. It's from the chapter titled No Man's Land. Quote, one day, several years into my prison stretch, I took a look around and realized the world had gone on without me. It was something all the convicts told me to expect. I was lucky. I still had both of my parents coming out to see me every weekend, and my grandma wrote me letters every day. I still had some friends who found time to come out and see me when they could. There was even a girl I came to dig a lot who stuck around and stayed in touch with me for a few years. But there were so many others who just figured something else out for their lives and decided there wasn't that much time. Intrigue still left keeping up with people in the joint. It started to feel like the self I had spent years trying to understand had finally died and the realization hurt, end quote. And I wanted to ask you if you experienced the same thing when you got out and how you coped with that. A little bit, a little bit. It's definitely different. And it's it's certainly much better than being incarcerated, but a lot of the same confusion. And it's writing how you coped 
with letting go of that version of yourself, both inside and outside? No, I mean, not necessarily outside, but definitely inside. It, I mean, I I don't know if I necessarily would have used it as a coping, but I just had a I had a drive. I had a motivation. I had things that I cared about and that I really wanted to put down. I had a lot of personal stories and, and communal stories that I really just felt needed to be recognized. But even since like probably where the setting of that particular essay, I lost all of those people. Right. So, you know, at the at the time of writing that story, I had lost my father, but I had not yet lost the grandmother who wrote me a letter every day for 13 and a half years. And then I ended up losing my mother in the thing. So, I mean, I ended up those were those were my last blood relatives. So so getting out feels a little different. We don't get a reunion moment. We don't get a lot of those things. And so in a lot of ways, it does feel like a chapter of your life is put away. However, you know, my being and the cells of my being all feel and understand and remember what cells feel like. I remember what it feels like to be humiliated by staff in those places. And so um, those things don't go away. Like, so, I mean, I feel like in a lot of ways, there's a strong reminder to me of what those places really still are. When I was writing that, I was really more reflecting on the idea of being too far from the door to be that person and being too far from the past to be that person. And so there's a really tough spot like where you're kind of operating in the dark. So when when Jeff is talking about, you know, everything in our being that we've we've accumulated to survive tells us to look the other way, right? Like it was, it's very much a lot of like, but in order for me to see and understand this stuff, I got to hold this stuff super close to my, my face. It was just, it was, it was a moment when you couldn't count on the fragile and sort of floaty air things in your life that, you know, the daydreams and the scenarios that you created to try to like make sense out of those things. There was just a point you had to say goodbye to it. And there's a lot of confusion that comes with that because all around you, you're watching people seemingly unravel, right? And unravel in different ways. And and so like some people, you can see them and they are a shell of maybe an earlier version of themselves. The trick though is understanding that people are still looking back at you as though you're unraveling as well, right? It is a thing. I think it is a, a gradual undressing that comes with living in institutions and being counted and living on a schedule that. Yeah, you're coming to terms with the transformation that is happening. And sometimes it takes the emotional, even though physically you're someplace, it obviously takes us sometimes emotionally a longer time to catch up with it. So you're kind of looking back and forward at the same time. Yeah. yeah and it's a tricky place because you're not grounded in anything in one particular place or another, right? I, right. That's one thing we always counted on was that, one thing I could always count on was that Sunday mornings, my people would be in that visiting room, right? And right. so when things that you've always counted on, a letter every day, start to start to disappear, right? Yeah. Then you start, and then you know you start to lose the same grip, right? Those are things we hold on to. Gotcha. No, I appreciate that. Thank you for sharing that. And Jennifer, I wanted to ask because um, I understand that PWW is the largest program of its kind in the country. Participants are writing, you know, in all forms. Do they also perform like an outlet for them to perform the plays? 
we haven't done any full plays. We've done some small sort of monologue performances and classes, definitely some oral storytelling performances. Almost all of the classes have a sharing component at the end, whether that's a reading or an, you know, an informal, um, I wouldn't call it a play by any stretch. Performance piece. Something like that. Yeah. And then pre-COVID, we had a really wonderful reading series that was happening at Stillwater Prison in the chapel. And that was generated again by the folks we work with through the Stillwater Writers Collective. I think Will Anderson was the artist at the time who wanted it. And then it was supported by all of the writers who were there living in the facility. Um, They're just really, really good at, at that kind of I mean, they can, they just know what to do to make things special inside. And they did. So these chapel readings would bring in maybe a hundred folks from general population, in addition to our staff from the outside. And then we would bring in writers, visiting writers to read alongside the writers on the inside. That was maybe one of the more fun things we've ever been able to do that was just moving. We haven't been able to get that back up since COVID started, um, or since COVID has essentially receded. Maybe COVID hasn't right. receded, but let, let's just say it has not happened since um, March 2020. Right. Yeah. Okay. Because I think actually they're getting ready to declare it officially over, which I sort of feel like that will bring a lot of, not a lot, but maybe some of these programs yeah. back because we started this podcast basically because okay. of COVID, yeah. um, because uh, the Prison Arts Collective's programs you know, we're no longer able to be um, done inside. So fingers crossed. And before I ask you guys to share something with our audience, Jennifer, I wanted to ask you about something I came across on the website. It was a video called Dear Voyage, and it was a poem by a writer named B with animation from Michelle Brost and a soundtrack by Ali Jafar. And it's a really striking collaboration. It's kind of otherworldly with references to cycles of life and nature and bodies of water, um, but also themes of escaping what the poet John Gillespie McGee called the surly bonds of earth. So I wanted to ask you about the process for combining his words with Michelle's images and um, Ali's music. How did that come about? Is that something that is always happening through the MPWW? No, it was a it was a new endeavor. Sometimes we get wild ideas and run with it, and then and then we realize we are our own worst enemies. But but I'm really glad you saw it, and I'm glad you liked it because this is still kind of new for us, and we weren't sure if it worked or if it didn't work. So I'm glad to hear it. To- it totally cool. works. Yeah, no, we got um, permission from B, who is an exquisite poet, who is also out at Stillwater and a member of that collective out there. Um, to use his poem for an animation project. And um, you mentioned Michelle did the animation and she found her own um, score writer who she's worked with uh, okay. in the past. Yeah. So once she had B's poem put to a rough sketch, I don't, I don't know the, the video terms. This was all brand new for us. In fact, so new that when my colleague Sue Wong and I re- approached animators in the Twin Cities to do this for us, we said, could you do this in approximately two months? And they laughed and they're like, you're talking about a film. And we were like, well, I don't know. How long does it take to make a film? We don't know. Right. So yeah, we adjusted our expectations, but um, the filmmakers knew what they were doing and the sound people knew what they were doing. And B's poem, of course, is just beautiful. And so the the weirdly enough, the big impetus for us was to have a very large version of the poetry. Um, there are four of them that exist now, and we're making two more in the community. And so those are on 
really large window decals that are placed throughout the Twin Cities. And the letterpress mm-hmm. artist who created those is Monica Larson with Sister Black Press. The very first flicker of that project started when I saw Monica's work on windows. The light comes through the poems and you get shadows inside. So yeah, the room kind of gets filled with people's words in ways that just completely takes my breath away. And it changes depending on the time of the day or the season. And just the idea that like those words are floating in kind of in and out and all over the room. Like it just, it was just breathtaking to me. So that was really what we wanted was just a window decal. And then, um, like I said, we just, we just kept dreaming and got a little bit fancy with it, but, um, yeah. Yeah, no, I love that. I, in my work, I deal a lot with transparency. So I love Mm. the fact that you can see something through something else. Yeah. And it would be nice if more people could see that, you know, like some sort of animation festival or something like that. Yeah. Um, I mean, they're all very short, really, like about a minute to a minute and a half. And I think we're working on one right now that'll be four minutes long. But yeah, um, I agree. Also, I want, I I have no idea if this even exists, but how cool would it be to have a series of photos just capturing this sort of shadow poems? Yeah. Maybe I'm overly romanticizing the light, but I just, I don't know. I would love for my words to be shadows on someone's wall at some point. Yeah. It's just so lovely. That is, I may have to borrow that idea. For yeah. Look up Monica Larson. She's a, she's a good sharer and she's really talented. Mm-hmm. So. I will do that. Thank you. So next um, Zeke and then Jennifer, if you want to sh- um, tell us what you're going to share writing wise and then take it away. You want me to go first, Jen? You go for it. And I have, it's, it's a piece. It was written. It's a, it's a short poem. It's not really a short poem, but it's a poem. But it's uh, it was written during a time when, even pre-pandemic, we spent a lot of time in our cells. There had been just a tragedy in, in, in one of the facilities. And typically when things like that happen, then the rest of us all get to wear it, right? We get to, we get to wear it even if we have absolutely no association with things. And so as people even detach from a situation, you really have no choice but to be attached to something. And so this was a particular piece that was written during a long stretch of time where we didn't have a lot of time out of our rooms. And it was, you know, we, and I was in a totally different facility than this other facility. And I'll let it just sort of do what it does. Okay. It's called Summer in a Coffin. We, who are locked down again, I'm watching a man's funeral. We've been reminded of his death for weeks. The only time a man in a uniform has been murdered in the 104 years that those buildings have cast their shadows over us. On Channel 9, organs drone, flowers are shushed by dim light. By we, I mean the entire door shut behind us, hard-boiled eggs served in a cell penal population of the great state of Minnesota. I worked all night folding mylar balloons in their factory, stayed awake just to watch. Me, I haven't slept in days. We were born dead, or weren't you asking? My celly said, fuck that. Watched a movie on Lifetime instead about those girls held hostage in a basement in Cleveland for over a decade. What kind of person could do that? On screen, every layer of power that has ever laid its hands on us there in rows and spirit and words. I am feeling for similar heart-shaped wounds, but brace for the malice lurking in the pipes, a revenge that will shower over us. As someone sopping in this water for so many years, I just wonder what kind of weapon it will become. 
I was in that prison 13 years. I don't know if he was a good man. I can't remember. Sitting alone in shackles, I spoke to my mother's ashes. Hers was a different kind of death, the kind that starves slowly. My entire family, or weren't you asking? They come as crows now to visit me here, peck at the yellow where the ammonia has scorched the grass, flip a channel, and you are an orphan watching another man's funeral on TV. This is what it is, the captivity business, prisoner in prisoners, sucking every last ounce measured in seconds until we are bones or air or walking with a piss bag attached to us. Some are in a coffin with a window. I watch for the crows. I mostly remember the cages and the men inside of them, a pageant with too many petunias upon it, officers, chaplains, wardens, all pay respects. The highway is lined with people, veterans and families with bouquets of carnations and marigold memories, blue lives matter signs held high for a hero's procession. The kind of folks I've never seen at the bread lines in my neighborhood. I feel oppressing, the only time in over a hundred years, and we will all sit still in the rain. As for me, I was born dying, and then there is a time when you reach inside of yourself and feel for the textures, sandy, rubbed raw, I felt for the silky cushion of empathy, compassion. Right next to sorrow was the handgun-shaped hardness of fear. What kind of person could do that? Thank you. <laughs> Get all the snaps. <laughs> and Jennifer, what are you sharing with us? You bet. Um, so I'm going to share an essay written by a great writer and visual artist for a book that 12 of the folks in Minnesota are creating, um, Zeke included, and it's called American Precariat, Parables of Exclusion. And Coffeehouse Press is going to publish that here pretty soon. And they've been editing it since pre-pandemic. Are we four years into it now, Zeke? Yes. We're some four years into this project, but it's, it's nearing the end. And this um, particular writer is using the name TM Red Warren. And this is a small excerpt from his essay called There Are No Bars in Rush City. And to just give you a quick overview, it's um, he's a visual artist and a writer, and he's writing it um, about his dear friend and Sally who ended up um, getting ALS. So I'll just read a small section of it. At Rush City Correctional Facility, you find your rush where you can. It's nearly 2 p.m., so that means second watch is in a hurry to finish their final security round, punch the clock, and peel out of the staff parking lot as quickly as they can. Eager, I can only imagine to do the things civilians do after their workday is done. Meanwhile, third watch has already parked their vehicles, locked them, double-checked them, and slogged in from the lot to the prison. In the span between their vehicle and the entrance to the facility, they've donned their canisters of pepper spray and their prison guard personas in order to get through another perfunctory eight hours. Monotony is motion. Welcome to Rush City Closed Custody Pen, population 1,000 incarcerated men, more or less. Meanwhile, back in the cell, I'm sitting at my desk taking a break from painting. Not a still life, but a portrait from the shoulders up. Just an old bald white guy was how my former celly Scott used to describe himself. It might look like I'm watching paint dry. I'm really gauging what I've put down so far and planning my next moves. 
I pour a cup of coffee and dig out some cookies I smuggled from Chow. They're chocolate with those fake M&Ms baked in. I don't like eating sweets alone, so I offer some cookies to my new Sally, who is perched on top of the bunk watching his TV. He declines. He claims that sweets mess with his 18-karat gold teeth. More cookies for me, then. Why do these cookies seem to taste better here in the cell than if I ate them in the chow hall? Is it because I have my hot coffee in relative peace and quiet? Or is it because I made it up through customs with the illicit chocolate treats? I take another bite of cookie as I look at the head and shoulders portrait in progress. The composition may be simple, but the subject is not. The man contains multitudes, and it's a tricky thing to recapture a life on canvas. It's more than mere talent. Talent is like, a, is like tap water, and it's more than endless hours of owning the craft. But that is a big part of the process. Consistency beats the occasional flash of brilliance. Hard work beats talent when talent won't work. I spent enough time around my friend Scott to learn these little mind morsels. For hours each day, Scott and I would do artwork. He would work in pen and brush on paper. The pieces were done in a technique using tools at hand by opening up a big pen and blowing out some of the ink into the bottom of the plastic sewing kit without scissors. He would load one of his customized bristle brushes with ink and lose himself in another world, creating beauty in grayscale, rendered with subtly and subtlety and nuance. He would sometimes ask me to stop painting and chime in, looking to the more experienced artist for affirmation and direction. I'm 15 years younger than Scott, and there are a few things I'm more experienced in, so I enjoyed the role reversal. He was an open vessel. He was deliberate and efficient. He wanted to learn things, to understand things, anything. He would be all in. He was a man of many talents and curiosities. I'll stop there, but Thank it's a beautiful you. essay. Yeah, no, it is a beautiful essay. And I could actually picture his whole method of, of painting mm -hmm. with, you know, grabbing the mm -hmm. ink. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you both. It's been a real pleasure having you on the program and reading your essays in the book. Thank you for your time and thoughtful questions. Absolutely. Thank you. You've been listening to an episode of Outside Inside Radio, brought to you by Prison Arts Collective. Prison Arts Collective is founded on the belief that art is a human right and is dedicated to bringing the transformative power of the arts to people experiencing incarceration. We are based at San Diego State University and have additional partnerships with three California State University campuses in Humboldt, Fullerton, and San Bernardino, and with UC Irvine. Prison Arts Collective is a project of California Arts and Corrections, an initiative of the California Arts Council and the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. Outside Inside Productions are a way to communicate with our participants and with the wider public through video and other media created as an extension of our distance learning project in response to COVID-19. Thank you for listening and tune in next week for another episode of Outside Inside Radio.